The following is a Galactic Network podcast. For more, go to GNCast.com. That's G-N-C-A-S-T-S dot com. Before there was radio, TV, or podcasts, people gathered together to tell stories. And these stories were meant to entertain or educate. It really drew people in and helped them forget their troubles of the day and experience something they've never imagined before or maybe illustrated something in a way that was more easily to mentally digest. This tradition has been reborn in the forms of not only RPGs and LARPs, but in console, card, and board games as ways to tell a story and bring you into the tale. We're going to be talking about news, kickstarters of games you should be aware of, and interview a guest about a topic that involves some aspect of storytelling. We welcome you to the Adventure Party. Hello, and welcome to the 43rd gathering of the Adventure Party on this, the 6th of March. I am your party leader, Brad Ludwig. We ask that you peace tie your swords, holster your blasters, and make sure you have your carbon emission caps at the ready while you are gathered at the meeting table. Uh, with us this week is a return visit from Nick Bentley from North Star Games. Hello. And it's good to see you again. It's been about, I believe, two months since we last saw you, sir. Yeah, you guys are handsomer wow. than you ever have been before. <laughs> and you are looking fine yourself. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for those of you, uh, uh, just so you're aware, we do an audio version of this, and we also do a version on YouTube. You can check us out at youtube.com slash galacticnetcasts, and you can find the Adventure Party there and check us out. Um, but we will continue on. As we said, we spoke to you about Stinker. That's uh, right. <laughs> January 10th. And uh, you've created other games. Uh, I love the titles of some of these. Cat Herders, the cat herding game of herding cats. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that is that's a one. great title. Uh, <laughs> Odd Glorietta. Uh, am, I, am I saying that right? Glor- Glorietta, yes. Yeah. Uh, Shallow and Shifty. Yep. Mm-hmm. And tonight, we are going to talk about your Kickstarter mm-hmm. for your expansion for uh, that's called Evolution Climate. That's right. So I work for North Star Games, and uh, one of the major projects that we've been working on there... Um, well, first of all, if you don't know North Star Games, we're, if you like party games, you may know us for Wits and Wagers, which is a game uh, about trivia on betting and betting on other people's guesses about trivia. Uh, But if you're a gamer, you may also know us from Evolution, uh, which is a game that simulates the rise and fall of species within ecosystems uh, according to the rules of evolution. That game has been out since uh, 2014, and we're running a Kickstarter right now uh, to... uh, for a new a new game, which is available both as an expansion or as a standalone, and it's called Evolution Climate. Yes. Yeah. And I know that uh, we've we've spoken of Evolution before. We most certainly mentioned it when you were you were with us uh, January tenth. And I know that uh, Glenn has reviewed it and has uh, has sings its praises uh, as a, as Evolution! an incredible game. Yeah. <laughs> All, all you need now is a harp to go with that, Glenn. Yes. 
And uh, um, so we are definitely going to uh, spend a bit of time. We're actually going to take our Kickstarter spotlight and our interview and kind of merge the two together because we are speaking to you about your Kickstarter for uh, for Evolution Climate. So Perfect. I love it. Yes. We're going to change things up just a little bit, but it all makes sense uh, when it comes out in the wash. So okay. uh, uh, the second in command, and you heard his voice briefly, uh, is Glenn Bittner, and he is a movie reviewer on the YouTube show Guy in a Bunker. I gotta change that in the notes here. I almost the said the show is the show is still BB Bunker. It is still oh, but the production company. Oh, geez, see now I'm yeah. jumping ahead of myself. I apologize. It's still the B Movie Bunker, and you are the creator of the RPG Mist Runner. Mm-hmm. How are you doing, Glenn? I'm doing wonderfully, wonderfully. I say. <laughs> For those of you who are watching us on YouTube, you can see the vast collection of uh, kitsch and things behind Glenn when he speaks and you sir have quite a if I could turn my camera a little bit you could see all the kitchen stuff that I have off to uh, my right shoulder so yeah you guys are out kitching me by orders of magnitude here <laughs> I feel bad about it <laughs> no there's no shame in that that's actually you're probably spending your money on wiser and better things sir chocolate mainly <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing wrong with chocolate <laughs> so, uh, as usual, we're going to do our roundtable with the game review, uh, gaming news, and then we're doing our merged Kickstarter spotlight and our discussion with Nick. So, kick us off here, Glenn. You have a review for us for... I'm really very curious about this because it hits a couple of things that I really, really enjoy. Actually, about three things... Lovecraft, yeah. Sherlock Holmes, and Neil Gaiman. So, yep. tell us more. This is a study in Emerald, second edition, uh, created by Martin Wallace, brought to us by Tree Frog Games. Uh, it's a game for two to five players. It takes about sixty minutes. Uh, just a little history on what the setting is. So, it's eighteen eighty-two, and the old ones are already here. They arrived 700 years ago, and have been. I got a pretty good voice right now for this type of stuff. Yeah, you do. With the, with all the gravelly coffeeness, but um, <laughs> the majority of people just get on with their lives, accepting their monstrous rulers. However, a growing band of revolutionaries wish to free mankind from their slavery. These freedom fighters call themselves the Restorationists. A secret war has already broken out between the Restorationists and the forces loyal to the old ones. The invention of dynamite has changed the balance of power. And a lone assassin now has the capacity to destroy an old one in this shadow world of assassins, informers, police agents, and anarchists. Nobody is quite sure who is who and which side they fight for. Rated R. No. Um, so, <laughs> <coughs> um, this game is kind of a mix of worker placement and deck building. Um, so, you get this interesting mix of, of the way that things play. So you have different, the board is made up, you have different cities around the globe. So you have like London, Paris, St. Petersburg, Vienna, uh, stuff like that. Um, in each location, there will be cards available for you to either uh, take into your deck or uh, perhaps uh, what they're called royalty to defeat, royalty being like um, some of the old ones themselves. Um, to do this, you have to disperse your agents around the city. 
and you also have to use influence as well. So you have uh, little wooden agents that you can put in locations, and then you have also little wooden influence cubes you put in places because you have to have influence in order to take cards, but your agents are the ones who will go around killing stuff for you. Um, it's a, a turn basically looks like this. You have, draw five cards from your draw deck, and your cards have a lot of different possibilities you can do with them. They're going to have different icons on the top showing what they're good for, and you choose which of these icons you're using this turn. So some, some cards may have icons that let you... Uh, put your influence cubes out on the board, or it may let you put more agents out. It could let you move your agents around or take uh, influence back into your supply from uh, either from where you have it located in the city or from what's called limbo, which is where influence goes once you spend it. Um, and you can do a lot of these different things based on, so if you have, you have five cards, you might have three or four that have the icon for uh, placing influence. You can play as many as you want to place that amount of influence. So if I play four cards, each with one, I can dump four influence somewhere, which is a lot of influence to have in a spot. Um, everyone has ten cubes max, so four is a, is a hefty chunk. Um, you can also, as not every card will have just one, many will have multiple icons on them, so you pick which icon you're using that turn. Um, you get two actions out of a possible, and it seems daunting at first when you go over the rules, you have two actions out of a possible nine uh, each turn, um, which, as I said, I already covered uh, putting out your influence or putting out agents. Uh, you can try to assassinate either other people's agents or, as I said, a royalty member, one of the old ones themselves. Um, the trick is, is you don't know who's on your side. You deal out, uh, there are six cards, three loyalist and three restorationist cards. You shuffle those up and you deal those out. No matter how many players you're playing with, you shuffle all six cards. So in a smaller game, like a two or three player game, you could actually all possibly be on the same side. Oh. Um, in, a, in a higher play, higher number game, you're going to have, obviously, a mix of people. There are cards that will influence. Um, there are two tracks. There's the Loyalist track and the Restorationist track, and you can make those go up uh, by playing different cards. If either track ever hits 10, the game ends. There's also uh, a way to end the game if... You hit a specific uh, victory point total, the game will end. And that is dependent on the, upon the number of players. More players means you need high, higher victory point total to end the game. The last way to end the game is uh, when you do things like, you know, try to murder uh, one of the uh, old ones, It's even though you can kill them, it's still a bit jarring, and you have to roll the sanity die because it's a Cthulhu-esque game. You have to have sanity. Yes. <laughs> if you ever lose all all your sanity, you start with three. If you ever lose all your sanity, or if you ever lose all of your agents, you have to reveal your identity. Now, if you're a loyalist and you've gone insane or lost all your agents, insane doesn't matter. You've are you're already a bit crazy, anyways. You follow the old ones. Um, if you're out of agents, you just get to put more agents on the board, and now everyone knows who you are, and the game continues. However, if you're a restorationist and your identity is revealed, the game ends immediately. Now, the for game everybody? Ending, what's that? For everybody or for that everybody. Oh my god, okay. And then you go into scoring, and scoring is a little weird because everyone reveals who they are. Now, you're going to have victory points, some that were gained uh, for there are three types of victory points. There's neutral ones which you just gain and keep. There are loyalist victory points. And there are restorationist victory points. So at the end of the game, if, for example, if I'm a restorationist, as I was today, 
any victory points I got that were loyalist based, I now lose from my total. Oh, sure, okay. Because so, I gain them all the time during the game because that way you don't spoil who you are. Yep. But now at the end of the game, I lose those loyalist points. Um, anyone else who had loyalist points that was also restoration will lose those points. And the same goes for uh, loyalists who have restoration points. Then, once you've done that, you look and see, okay, what person has the lowest score on the victory point track? Okay, you find out it's, you know, it's we'll say it's Nick. You then look, who's on Nick's team? Everyone on Nick's team loses five points. Oh, okay. And then whoever has the highest score at the end of that is the overall winner. So there's a lot of ways. You can look like you're going to win. You're sitting pretty, you know, way up above everybody. But now all of a sudden if you lose a bunch of your points because you're on the wrong side for your victory points, and then someone else on your team is in dead last, they'll go five more victory points. And when you're playing a five-player game, you're only talking to end it is 20. Sure. So it's not a lot of points. And if you're going to lose five, I lost I lost three um, in the game I played because I had three bad ones. So I went from, I popped over 20 to 21, then I lost three. Thankfully, the person was right behind me ended up being the other team, and she lost more points than I did. Otherwise, she would have jumped over me. And even though if she had been on my team, yes, my team would have won, but she would have won the game overall. Because even though you're on a team, there's still an overall winner. Uh, which you don't normally get with, with team-type games. It's usually just the, our team won. It's like, our team won, but I won more than you. So, <laughs> um, And I just I, I like the mix of, of both worker placement by putting your agents and influence out and then taking those cards and adding them to your draw deck, which give you other, other abilities. Everyone starts with the same 10 cards, but as you beef up your deck with other cards, you get other abilities that you can pick. And there's a lot of jostling and fighting uh, going on over those cards as well because to claim cards in a location, you have to control that location, meaning you need more uh, oh, sure. little wood bits there than anyone else. You have to have at least one influence, and then you have to just outnumber everyone else with everything else you have. So if you have two agents in a spot and I have an agent in influence, neither of us controls it. If I can add one more thing there, then I can take the card so that way because um, now I would have three to your two. So sure. it's it, there's a lot of lot of stuff going on where you have to really balance what cards you're doing and where you're going. And sometimes you get caught in a giant bidding war where I want, you know what, I want Sherlock Holmes. I'm going to plop some agents over there because he popped up as a card. I want him to grab him because he's really good. And all of a sudden, you know, then the next player goes. And they're going to say, I want Sherlock Holmes. So they plop a bunch of stuff down. And now they're higher than you. And then someone else comes along and they plop stuff down. Because you can't just... Go in, drop your influence, take a card. Not that easy. You have to build up for at least a turn. Because when you take a card, it can only be the first of your two actions. So that way you can't just sneak in there. You know, Sherlock Holmes popped up. I can't just go in there, drop one influence, and snag that card quick. Oh, sure. If I'm not, yeah. if I'm not already there controlling it, I have, to, I have to go in and do it. And the other nifty thing is, is if I take a card from a location that people were fighting over, my influence is removed and put in limbo meaning it's currently out of play. Anyone else who had influence there takes their influence back, so all their influence is removed from the board as well. So now that place has no influence anymore. So everyone loses it, because basically you all have trying to influence the same thing. So like the Sherlock Holmes one, we're all probably going to influence and trying to get him to come to our side. So when somebody finally claims him, all the nice stuff you did for him just goes away. Yep, He's like, okay. yeah, you bought me a pipe, but that guy got me a pipe and a hat. So... <laughs> 
it's just it's a really it's a really cool game. And if if you have never read, uh, it's, there's a short story that Neil Gaiman wrote called Study in Emerald, uh, which is all which is Sherlock Holmes and H.P. Lovecraft combined together. So I mean, I I didn't need more reason than that to buy this game. Yeah. Even without seeing Neil's name on it, Neil is just like icing on on my proverbial tentacle cake. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's it's on my list of uh, of books to get because it's a part of an anthology, as I recall. Yes. Um, and uh, you know, as you were talking about the structure of the game, uh, and I've been showing some of the cards and stuff to folks who are checking us out on YouTube. Um, it reminded me of the Discworld board game. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, because and the reason why I say that is because Discworld is broken up into certain parts. All of you are uh, uh, certain characters within the Discworld books, and you are in charge of uh, trying to. You, as I recall, you each have goals uh, to achieve as individual characters, but you need to take control of the criminal element within certain sections of Discworld. And you know people can you know take those uh, places from each other, and there are even you know bits to put in those uh, sections of Discworld uh, to show the ownership and whatnot, uh, whatever's going on in that particular district. And there are certain, as I recall, there are certain benefits, uh, certain special abilities that you gain for taking some of those areas. So I, I mean, I, I saw a couple of similarities uh, between. The games in in certain mechanics, but um, yeah, if you're if you're a fan of H.P. Lovecraft or Neil Gaiman or Sherlock Holmes, uh, this is probably a game that you would be interested in getting. Uh, what is the typical retail for this particular game? Uh, fifty dollars. Okay, so maybe. <laughs> Now, now I'm second-guessing myself when I say that because I was showing so much stuff off at work today, I have to double-check. Sure. Okay. Um, the general retail for this one is... Da -da -dun, actually, it's 60 Okay, okay. So less than Galaxy Trucker. Yes. <laughs> Which, uh, another good game, and not even close to the uh, same type of game. Uh, as a study in Emerald. But, again, two to five players, and it's best with about four to five people. Um, yeah, it really is. And now, takes, is this, oh, uh, is this would you consider this like a typical Martin Wallace game with lots of kind of weird corner cases and obscure rules, or is it different than that? Kind of. Because, like I said, there's, there's so many... You have so many choices of actions you can take. Because, like I said, you have nine choices, and you're doing two. Mm. And there's a lot of symbols to keep track of of what everything does. Once right. you know them, it, it, once you know what they do, they're fairly obvious. Okay, so a pink arrow pointing up with the number one means the uh, restorationists get a point. A green arrow with a two means loyalists get two points. Or a little cube with a blue arrow pointing up means I get to put influence out on the board. A red arrow pointing down means you can take cubes back from the board. Mm. So, but it's a lot to keep track of, and there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on with these cards. Plus, some cards have just icons that you can use. Some have icons 
or abilities you have to choose which one you're doing mm, okay and then to throw on top of that there's also some cards that are free actions which don't count towards your two actions so now and there's no limit how many free actions you can take so if you have if you had three or four free action cards in your hand you can take all of those and your regular two actions so there's there's a lot of ways that, that go on with a lot of stuff going on and yeah the first read through of the rules it's as there's a lot of wall of stuff it's really clunky mm. I actually I, I cheated and I read the rules and then I watched a video on it to get a little bit more of a understanding of how this works because I, I still I'm not 100 percent we played right the few times we've played but I think we are but that's how I feel with every Wallace game. I think I'm playing right. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, because uh, uh, it was Automobile and uh, oh, what's the other one that... Brass. Always... What's that? Brass is one he... Uh, brass, yeah, Brass. That's got some weird stuff. Age of Steam. Yeah. Um, oh, and, and Brad, in, in your reasoning of the This Feels Like Discworld, mm-hmm. this is the Discworld game. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'm the, starting to look the through Ar- the... Ar- Ar- and, uh, yeah. and also The Witches. He made two <laughs> Discworld games, so... Well, that explains that. Okay. Yes, which also makes sense knowing the friendship that Pratchett and Gaiman had, too, so... Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Well, there you go. All right, well, thanks for pointing that out to us. And absolutely, man. It, uh... You know, I, I, I think... I think we can all agree that if you get a game and you look at the rules and you go, uh, YouTube is probably one of the best resources that you could ever tap into because there are probably, for every game that's out there, you'll probably be able to find a couple of walkthrough videos that show you gameplay. And if they're not done by people that are really good at the game, Sometimes the people that actually manufacture them, make the games, will do walkthrough videos to help people uh, get a better sense of gameplay. So yeah, so I, I can't recommend using YouTube as a resource enough for a game that you purchase that looks a little daunting when you pull out the 50-page manual, <laughs> if yeah. that is the, indeed the case. So, uh, yeah, never be afraid to check into YouTube to see if there's a, a resource to, to help you and everybody that wants to play along. So Yeah. A lot of companies are actually now putting QR codes or URLs in the rulebook to direct you to some video they made about how to play oh. a game. Sure. Yeah, I'm very happy they're doing that. Yeah, and uh, one of the best people out there for, for showing off a game is Rodney. Rodney Smith. Rodney Smith played. is he – does, he does a great job showing off games, and then really, you can watch his video, and you barely even need to crack the rule book. Yeah, his, he, it's perfect, his explanations. Huh, okay. And he's, so. got, he's got a delightful Canadian accent, too. <laughs> Lots of the boots in there. Yes, or with the Mice of Mystics, it was uh, Moose. <laughs> Mo- oh, okay, you're Canadian. Moose, That's yeah. why you're saying Moose instead of Mouse. <laughs> Is that a sequel? <laughs> Well, you know that he's probably very, very polite about the whole uh, gameplay. So that's uh, one of the things that makes him so good at this. Is he's just got, he's got a, just a very welcoming and relaxing demeanor. Yeah. And, you know, if and if you're trying to get into a game that seems pretty daunting, you really kind of need that. So you do. So I I found out why he's so good at that. 
before he did these game videos, he was a professional instructional video maker. Oh. <laughs> so he has a whole career behind him of experience sure. that he puts into these things. Wow. I, I wonder right. if he has advertising on his stuff. I wonder wonder how well he does with, with YouTube. Uh, he gets lots of views. Yeah, I think his videos tend to have, I think, I don't know, last time I checked he had like 40,000 followers. Wow. On okay. his YouTube channel. I don't, know, I don't know how many views that translates into. Well, um, the evolution video has 25,000 views. <laughs> nice. Because he does evolution. That's something I should know since I do marketing for North Star Games. <laughs> and, and the video's linked on the Kickstarter. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I put it there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! No, it's... What is that exactly? You know, Superman is an extraterrestrial, so you may hear us talk about him on the Alien Invasion podcast. Hey, it's Dave Nelson inviting you to join myself, Brad Ludwig, and Anessa Moyens for our weekly discussion about all things not of this Earth, whether they be gray or green creatures from fiction, the latest stories from the world of science regarding the real possibility of life out there somewhere, or the claim from somebody saying they're already among us. We'll talk about it. You'll hear three stories from the week's news, a featured sighting, and our entertainment picks or warnings rated on a scale of one to five flying saucers, of course. All of it and more every week on the Alien Invasion podcast, part of the Galactic Netcast network of shows. Find us at gncasts.com slash aliens or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. We're going to move on to talking about uh, Patreon quickly and uh, joining the Galactic Netcasts uh, Patreon uh, group and lending us your support uh, to help us with some expenses that we have with web and audio hosting. There are multiple levels of support, a uh, dollar a month, uh, $3 a month, and 5 And if you do uh, 3 or $5, you can get a little extra something. And uh, 3 gets you a monthly newsletter, and 5 would get you one of our uh, podcasts, actually all of our podcasts, doing a special exclusive episode for patrons. So uh, check out patreon.com slash galactic netcasts and uh, support us at whatever level you feel that you can. So, all right. Now we're going to get into the news. And I saw that we've, we've talked a few times, Glenn, about how D&D uh, 5th Edition has left a lot of things open. They haven't had a whole lot of resource books, per se, available. And we've kind of recently seen the door start to swing open. And they are releasing, or they have released, Men and Monsters of Ethiopia, which is an RPG source book. And this comes to us from Tabletop Gaming News. Now, people people have been leave, living in Ethiopia since, well, just about since people have been. Obviously, a place with such a long history of having humans there is going to be full of legends and lore that would make great fodder for your gaming sessions. And that's just what Skirmisher Publishing has done. They've created Men and Monsters of Ethiopia, which is a new source book uh, to use with the 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, there are 17 new monsters with 29 stat blocks for them. 
There's 20 pre-existing monsters that have been adapted for the setting. There's also 11 types of NPC and 5 new stat blocks for them. There's also a section on religions and animals in the region. And to put them all together, there are encounter tables. So, do you think that we might see more source books? And this is kind of interesting that they, they, they chose Ethiopia, and obviously because there is a, you know, quite a bit of history there, obviously. Do you think that we are going to see more source books for uh, other regions, like, say, uh, Asia or Europe or, you know, maybe something on the Celts? Or what, what do you think, Glenn? I think they could. Um, whether they do, it all, it all depends on, one, how well this one's done. And uh, also, I mean, I'm assuming if someone else does it, it very well could be the skirmisher polishing it again. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see why they wouldn't, but then again, you know, I'm not, I'm not working for them, so that says something right there. Um, <laughs> True enough. But yeah, I mean, they have been slow coming out with stuff, but the stuff they've found has been good so far, which yeah. I think is part of the, or is, uh, part of the, I guess, the effect of them releasing it slowly is that there's been a lot more oversight, um, which I know some people are upset about, but I look back to the days when, like, second edition, as much as I loved it. And then, and, and then even when they started going out of house with third edition, when it was all OGL, mm-hmm. oh, my God, there was so much stuff being poured out. And even with the Internet, it was hard to find out what was good and what wasn't because there was so much stuff. Yeah, I would most certainly agree with that. Uh, yeah, so we're seeing a lot more quality over quantity, which has its pros and cons because everybody can find that diamond in the rough in even a supplement or a resource that isn't quite so great. That said, I think that with... The feeling that I get is with what happened with 4th edition not really taking off as well as uh, they had hoped, I kind of get the impression that they've taken this new stance to try to help ensure the quality um, and I think that uh, th- what we've seen has definitely reflected that. So <clears throat> I'm kind of hoping that we do see some more, some more good stuff, and I'm not even sure what's coming out next. Uh, well, the one that is really seen right now is Curse of Strahd. Oh, that's right. They're getting into Ravenloft. Oh, yep. okay, yep. I'm in. <laughs> I love, love the Ravenloft. If Raven you Lost have a thing. store near you that is an advanced store, as far as carrying Wizards of the Coast stuff, mm-hmm. I don't know, like a board game barrister, <laughs> that's already in stock. What? We nice. get it before other chumps. <laughs> it's good to be the king, isn't it, Glenn Bittner? Well, it's 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 payoff for running a lot of events for Wizards of the Coast. Sure. What's well, that's really cool to see that Wizards of the Coast does that. Yes, and despite as much as a lot of retailers whine about Wizards of the Coast, and I mean, sometimes you have legitimate, little legitimate gripes. I mean, when they do price, when they increase the price to stores, but say, oh, but the MSRP stays the same. All right, you have a legitimate gripe there, you know, especially when they do it three, four times in a row. But ouch, mostly people complain about they complain about their play stuff and the events they run, and 
as as a lot of companies have gotten better at this, but still, no one supports their open play like Wizard of the Coast does. And part is because of the fact that they're a really really big company sure. um, in their own right, and then you have Hasbro behind that, so they give out lots of free stuff. Yeah. On top of the fact that a lot of the free stuff for their games is simply here's a stack of cards, which compared to like a board game where it's the they can possibly do a card update, but a lot of things it's you know you can't just go hey here's a whole bunch of extra wood meeple things that are specially made for this. <laughs> it's harder to do promo stuff for board games than it is for, for just that, for just a card game, or here's a free, you know, 10-page adventure path for, for your D&D players. So. Sure. Uh, Nick, uh, definitely don't want to leave you out of the conversation. Uh, D&D 5th Edition, have you dipped your toes in? Well... <laughs> Actually, I have a terrible thing to confess. Okay. I haven't. So even though I'm in the game industry, professional game designer and marketer, I haven't played a role-playing game since I was in the fifth grade. See, that, no, understood. There's no shame in that whatsoever. I don't know. It feels like a professional application oh. of duties. <laughs> no, oh, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of plenty of actual board gamers out there who have never even played a single RPG. Oh, let yeah. alone fifth grade, so... Yeah. There are a great many. And in fact, I mean, in some ways, it's an advantage. I know many game designers who are so steeped in the role-playing world that they bring uh, idioms from that world into the board game, board game design when those mechanics are harder for other people to understand who sure, haven't yes. been steeped in the role-playing world. And I, I'm sort of like that, so I... Uh, I, I miss. I, I don't make those bad assumptions. I, I make a whole other set of terrible, stupid assumptions when I'm designing games, but not those. <laughs> yeah, I could see there being a lot of a lot of drawbacks to having that that kind of baggage, and that really, I, I think that a, an exceptional game designer would be able to, might be able to have a. a, a probably an easier time compartmentalizing mechanics for board games and RPGs and trying to find where there might be good crosses mixtures of the two but not bogging it down with uh, too many rules or too many you know mental hoops to jump through to, to, to kind of grasp the concept because yeah they are entirely different beasts um, yeah the really sa savvy designers in the industry can go back and forth very easily, you know, just like a president code switches when he talks to different audiences. Um, sure. But you know, many, many of us who design games are not uh, sort of professional game design lifers and aren't that sophisticated. <laughs> but you make darn good games, so there's uh, there's no shame in that. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right, uh, we're going to move along with the news, and we are going to uh, have uh, Ryan Murphy give us a little bit of news uh, on the digital front, and uh, what do you got for us, Ryan? All right, thanks for the report, Ryan. Uh, we are going to jump now into our Kickstarter spotlight. Last time... We talked about uh, the game Cult Divinity Lost, which is a reboot. Here we are back to RPGs. Uh, it is a reboot of an RPG from 1991. And we did talk a little bit about some of the interesting 
somewhat of the trend of rebooting games, like uh, we spoke with um, Matthew McFarlane about uh, rebooting Chill. Uh, we've talked about Onyx Path doing some reboots from the uh, 90s, uh, Vampire the Masquerade, and some of their their product lines, uh, White Wolf's product lines from, from the 90s. And here we are with Cult, Divinity Lost. And as of now, with 24 days to go, uh, they're looking for a pledge of 11,190. Uh, they're sitting at 147,949. So uh, I'm pretty sure that this is uh, this is a go. Uh, they've done exceptionally well with this, and it's uh, based on everything that they have released here, and uh, people are most certainly interested. And they only have three... It looks like they only have three stretch goals left. If they can... Let's see. Oh, wait. No, I'm sorry. I'm totally reading that wrong. Yeah, totally reading that wrong. Uh, they are going to be walking firmly into their second stretch goal, which is a quick play scenario, which is going to be offered free and digitally uh, when they get to... Uh, well, that's 150... SCC. I'm trying to do, I'm trying to do uh, money conversions here. Uh, they are. See, this is being done with uh, uh, Kroner. Uh, what is that? Netherlands. I'm trying to remember what. <coughs> Something like in, that. Oh, this is in Stockholm, Sweden. Okay, so they're at one million two hundred fifty-six thousand thirty-five. In their particular currency, which one million? Yeah, no, I was right the first time. They have three more stretch goals to go, <laughs> and uh, their last stretch goal is at uh, one million five hundred SEC. So they have definitely hit a lot of their stretch goals. They've done some amazing things here, and uh, the people have spoken. They really wanted this this update. Uh, this reboot to Cult Divinity Lost. So congratulations to them. We are now going to talk about and get into our discussion with Nick about evolution climate. Yeah. And I think what we're going to do, we're going to change up the format here a little bit, is we're going to have you, Nick, walk us through evolution climate, and then we'll talk about the Kickstarter. Sure. So I guess I'll start by talking about what evolution is, okay, uh, and then talk about what climate is in addition to that. So evolution is a game that takes like 45 minutes to an hour, plays between two to six players, and it simulates some key aspects of evolution. In it, players uh, build species and they endow them with traits. Traits are cards that you have in your hand, and then you build a tableau of species by giving those traits to individual species. And the traits combine on a species to give it the ability to survive. That means being able to eat food in ways that others can't, or to avoid predation from carnivores, or to become a carnivore. Um, the food supply in the course of the game wavers, and so there are times of boom and bust, and species proliferate and they die off. Some go extinct, others thrive. Uh, and so it's a very reactive, adaptive game which is exactly what you would want if you're playing a game about evolution. Um, so 
we've been very careful to make sure it's a very thematic game. In fact, recently it was featured in Nature magazine, which is the world's leading scientific journal. Wow. Yeah, I, uh, before I was in board games, I was a neurobiologist. And for years, I tried to get a paper into Nature, but I couldn't. So uh, I tell people that I, you know, that I was only able to get a paper into Nature once I entered the board game industry. <laughs> that is so that's, evo that's evolution. Uh, <laughs> so in Nature, uh, all there's all kinds of things that affect species' ability to adapt. Uh, the invasion of a new predator into some species' niche, the spread of a disease, the fluctuation of resources and the competition for them. But in nature, almost all of these things are driven uh, in one way or another by climate change. So we want to include in the evolution game system some way for climate to fluctuate uh, and affect species in a way that it does in real life. That's what evolution climate is. It's a standalone game, and it's a bigger game than evolution. It's a little more complicated. It's more for... Uh, it's more of a hardcore gamer's game, the kind of game that you would expect to see um, in, you know, the top rankings in Board Game Geek rather than a game that you might see at Target or Barnes & Noble. Um, and we're kickstarting it right now. The Kickstarter ends on March 22nd. Now, right now, we are at $188,000 about, which is way above our, uh, our goal, which was $20,000. We've got, like, 4,200 backers now uh, with 16 days remaining. Um, yeah, and, and that's it. No, I... Oh, that, that has to be such a good feeling to, to look at that and know that one, you've created an excellent game, two, that you've created an expansion that people have really kind of latched onto and it's been incredibly successful and that success has been kind of mirrored in the amount of... Uh, of people that have uh, bought in and are looking to get get the game. So, and looking at all these unlocks here <laughs> for your stretch goals, that's got to be really gratifying. Yeah, we have a lot, and we actually have a lot more as well. Um, I don't know the exact number of stretch goals that we've unlocked so far. Maybe like twelve or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, but one thing I want to emphasize is that if you go to this campaign and you back it, there's two different ways to back it. So one is you can back Climate, which is a standalone game. You just get one box, and it has everything you need in it to play the game. But if you have Evolution, we also sell a conversion kit that allows you to convert Evolution into Climate because there are some components that the two games share. Uh, so you're kind of, you know, you can... Whether you already have Evolution and played a lot, or you're new to the system, you can get into climate. Okay. And good. I love that idea. I love the fact you guys yeah. did that. Um, I mean, myself personally, as a gamer, I'd go out and I'd you know drop the you know whatever the new game costs to have it in addition to Evolution. But it's it's a nice thing that for all the people I have in my store who've already bought the game. When, I, when they ask, well, what's different about this, you know, that I'm going to drop and buy a brand new game when I already have Evolution, it's nice I can say, well, if you already have Evolution, you can get this smaller box here instead. Right. Yeah, we talked so much about how to do this. Uh, so 
if we had, we could have, on the one hand, created a system where you had to buy Evolution first and then had just a straight-up expansion that you have to buy on top of that if you want to have the climbing experience. But that makes the cost of buy-in really high for anybody who wants to, sure. uh, yep. to, to jump in. Um, so instead, we have this standalone game, uh, which makes it easier for us to design it in a very integrated way as well, uh, which is which is really important when you're trying to, to keep a game very thematic and at the same time lean in terms of rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can get in in a much less expensive way. Okay, well that definitely answers uh, some of the questions that we had uh, written up for you. Uh, yeah. No, that's, that's truly brilliant. Truly brilliant. And, you know, I, I think we've seen some other games successfully create conversions um, in the past. And, um, you know, I think that really kind of respects the the people that got in on the first one in Kickstarter and uh, also allows you to tap into new people who have never experienced it before. So I think that's probably something that the gaming community truly appreciated. Yeah. In addition to that, so um, one of the things we're most proud of is the art in Evolution. So every image that you see is actually a a watercolor that has been painted by a world-famous nature artist named Catherine Hamilton. And we've digitized that watercolor. So it's not... Most games, you know, there's somebody who renders the images on a computer, uh, and then those go into the game. These are actually watercolor paintings that exist, and we have them framed all over our offices. Um, So the art is is very, very beautiful. And uh, we had an opportunity with Climate to... create some really dramatic components for it that we wouldn't have had the opportunity to create if we had just created an expansion instead of a whole new standalone game. Uh, And so, yeah, we really wanted to do that. Uh, An example is, so in the original game, Evolution, there's a central component called the watering hole. And the watering hole is where you put food that the species then compete for. Um, In climate, we had the opportunity to make a much larger watering hole that includes something called the climate track, which determines and tells you where the climate swings. Is it a warm environment or a cold environment? Um, so uh, we, by making a standalone game, we had this opportunity to create this really big, beautiful board with the climate track on it and a whole new sort of watering hole uh, with new kinds of functions on it. No, that's, that's cool. Yeah, that no, that is great. And while you were talking, <clears throat> excuse me, while you were talking, I was uh, showing everybody on YouTube some of the art uh, from the game, and yeah, it is it is truly spectacular and not what I would consider typical art for for a game. And it is, and the color palettes for it too are just really beautiful. Um, yeah, we're very aware of. I mean, you guys are probably aware of it too. Right now, there is sort of an arms race going on among board game publishers to see who can make the most beautiful game. Uh, (laughs) Visuals matter so much in creating that initial appeal to get people interested in games. Sure. All of us publishers, we just put an enormous amount of effort into it. And you saw from the study in Emerald, like, that board was beautiful, right? Uh, So that's what we have to compete with. Uh, And so we go all out, completely, completely and so far it's paying off you know these campaigns that we're running for evolution are very successful people are happy with what we're doing and we're proud of it as well especially of the fact that it doesn't look like other games 
Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I personally, I have a lot of games that I love that all look like they were done by the same artist. <laughs> yeah. It, and I was going to say, keeping with the theme of, of nature and having somebody who isn't necessarily a game artist do the artwork really, I think, helps with having that unique look. And I think right. that, that was really a brilliant move uh, for right. you guys to do. And because this person is a Catherine Hamilton is a, a is famous for her nature art, you can you can really feel it in, when you look at the pictures. It you know it's the kind of art that you might see in a super high end physiology textbook or something like that. Uh, well, and, and as someone who works in a store, um, the original evolution uh, with this type of art that it's often that image that initially draws people in. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I walked by the, the Barrett's wasn't When it was still new and it wasn't, not everyone had heard of it. Right. Yeah, one of the eternal questions in board games is how do you get people interested in something that they know nothing about? It takes a lot of effort to learn a board game, so something about it has to appeal before you know the rules. And, the, you know, the most obvious thing is gorgeous, gorgeous art. Yeah, because not everything can be a game about Sherlock Holmes fighting Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, even if it is, there's a lot of Cthulhu games out there. There so are. No, that's very what's true. Gonna, what's going to interest a person in this particular Cthulhu game? It's going to be the cool board with the tentacles reaching all over it that looks really amazing. Sure. Um... You know, what, I guess, you know, one of the questions I had is when you sat down and you decided to basically create an expansion, for all intents and purposes, uh, what made you choose focusing on climate? Were there other ideas kind of left on the table where you went, well, maybe not this time, but next time? <laughs> yeah, well, in fact, there are several other ideas. I wouldn't say we necessarily left them on the table. We're working well, on that. You just basically tabled them for now, and you went with climate as, as the, the focus this time around. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's a number of things we're working on simultaneously, and the order in which we do them is determined uh, by a couple of things. In the case of climate, the most important determining factor was last year, uh, me and Dominic Krapuchets, the lead designer, we were at... Uh, BGG FAM, or I think it's now called BGG Spring, a, con a convention run by Board Game Geek in the spring. And we were working over game design concepts. Among them, we were talking about how we might do a climate, uh, a climate version of the game. And we had a breakthrough there that uh, sort of crystallized everything for us. And ever since that time, we're like, yes, this is what we're doing because we know exactly how it's going to play out. You know, the central, um, the central concept in game design is so important and it's very hard to get right. I think you know, if there's one thing I wish I could get more designers to do, it's to not dive into the details of their game right away, but instead take time trying to come up with a central organizing principle that will make everything make sense and create interesting strategy and tension and the right amount of swinginess and all that. Before getting into the details, before you go into design individual cards or individual you know, worker placement mechanics or whatever. And we had, a, we had a moment like that where we understood the overarching structure of the game. That's what got us going on it. Sure. Well, you, you got to start with a solid foundation before you can 
you know, make all the fancy bits. Otherwise, it just seems disjointed. So, right. And I mean, if you don't have a great concept, design is a lot harder. It's a lot less fun. Sure. You run into more problems that you don't immediately know how to fix, and you have to backtrack 500 times. And yeah. sometimes by the end of that, you're just buried under a mountain of kludge, and uh, it's it's just no fun at all. But if you start with a good concept, it can be just like traipsing through the daisies. It can be sure. really fun. The magic of game design is when you're working from a good concept. And I would think, too, that that would make like coming up with the rules for the game a lot more streamlined as well if, if you've got a, a solid foundation to, to start from. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we were talking about Martin Wallace and a lot of his you know, obscure, obscure rules and corner cases. Now, Martin Wallace is a great designer, but I would say one of his weaknesses is that sometimes the central concept is not perfect, and he uses his genius at other aspects of game design to make up for that. So he ends up with an amazing game, uh, but he gets at it in a, a way that's maybe more difficult than it has to be. That would be my opinion. Okay. I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I playing. I didn't get a chance to play uh, all through the Discworld. No, I, actually, I did. That's right. Uh, this was like a couple of months ago. I did get a chance to to go through Discworld, and uh, it was like a surprise ending. It was like, oh, I've met all my stuff, and and we're done now. And it just, you know, I seemed for my first time out, I was really kind of confused as to how to ever how everything kind of worked. So, uh, yeah, I could see where having a good solid core concept and not having to make up for not having everything probably as streamlined as it could be can really detract from a game possibly. So Yeah. Well in addition to that, you know, from a business perspective, every page of rules that you add limits the audience for the game significantly. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, uh, as a hardcore gamer, I mean I love games that are, you know, high up in the BGG rankings. But a lot of those games do not sell that much compared to games with simpler rules that are maybe less popular um, on BGG per se, but more popular in the world at large. Oh yeah, absolutely. And in 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 another way too is if you come up with more complicated rules, that means more printing costs. <laughs> If you need yeah. a you know fifty page manual to explain the game, that's you know more cost involved to for production. So yeah, and I mean one more thing, uh, I mean for me personally, the great magic of games is that games can be more than the sum of their rules. They can exhibit emergent complexity. Sure. Yep. And because of that, you know going into it that if you find the right set of rules, you can have elaborate, dramatic, interesting, detailed strategy without a mountain of rules. Like, you know that's possible. You just have to take the time to find it, you know? Sure. What You mentioned being at the, the BBG event, and it crystallized. What was that aha moment where you went, oh, this is how we do climate? Yeah. So the dilemma we were facing uh, was that um, in real life, nobody, no species controls or predicts the climate. Well, arguably there is one species now that does, <laughs> uh, but our game isn't set in its time, so there are no humans in the game. Uh, so 
so on the one hand, climate is hard to control and predict. On the other hand, evolution is a deep strategy game. We run tournaments for it. We didn't want to introduce so much randomness that it wouldn't be a good tournament game. So how do you sort of uh, navigate, negotiate between those two design constraints? So our big breakthrough is about how to do that. Uh, and we realized that we actually already had sort of solved the problem already for evolution, not evolution climate, but evolution, and that we could take the same concept that we use there and apply it to changes in climate. And that concept has to do with the food supply in the game. So uh, the only environmental effect in base evolution is the food supply. And the way the food supply is determined is each player has takes one of the cards from their hand at the beginning of each round, and they place it face down in the watering hole. On each card, there's a number. So each player knows what number they've put in the watering hole, but they don't know what numbers the other players have put in the watering hole. Uh, when it comes time to feed, all those cards get turned over. You add up the numbers, and that's how much food is put into the watering hole for animals to eat from. So uh, you have this, it's almost like a, a Ouija board, I guess, a Ouija kind of mechanism. It's totally deterministic, and the players are collectively determining by their decisions how much food goes in there, but it's hard to predict. It takes great savvy to predict. You really have to get inside of your opponent's minds to try to understand how they might want the food supply to change. So we realized that we could do the exact same thing for climate. So when you put a, a card in the watering hole in the climate version of the game, not only does it determine how much food is available, but it also determines how far the climate swings to warmer or colder. Um, so in this case, on each card, there's a, a one or a few suns or one or a few snowflakes. You add up all the suns and snowflakes, and the net number of suns or snowflakes determines how far cold or how far warm the climate shifts at the beginning of each round. Aha. Okay. That also means that we didn't have to add any more fiddliness to the game. The sure. actions that you take are identical to the actions you take in the base game, but it adds on this whole dimension. It was sort of like adding a whole wing of a house on for free, sort of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure. Uh, so, yeah, when we realized that, we were off to the races, and we've been off to the races ever since. That's kind of a so simple it's brilliant sort of a thing. That's what we like to think. <laughs> <laughs> No, that, and I can see how you would probably not see that right off the bat. Um, it's one of these things where, in retrospect, now that we've been living with it for a while, it's hard for us to understand how we missed it in the first place. Um, but looking at it prospectively, it was very hard to see it in the thicket sure. of other possibilities we were looking at. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's really cool. So... Just to kind of carry this a little bit further and so we can kind of better understand some of the, the core bits of, of climate, what happens then if there is, you know, you put the food in and in, in your climate cards in there, you flip them over, you now know how much food is in the watering hole. Mm -hmm. What then happens when the climate shifts either like dramatically hotter or colder, does that affect the watering hole? What, what does that affect? 
So it affects three different things. Okay. Uh, first, the amount of food in the watering hole can be further adjusted. So in warm, temperate regions, you can get more food, whereas if it gets very cold or if it gets super hot, the food supply can decline, just like in real life. Sure. Uh, in addition to that, some species may lose population, and what determines whether they do, do or not is their body size. Sure, okay. So in, when it's cold out, uh, species that, that have small body sizes tend to lose population. This is just how it works in, in real life as well. Surface area to, uh, to volume ratio matters in determining how well uh, a species can conserve or dissipate heat. When it's cold, you want to be big so you can conserve heat. When it's warm, you want to be small so you can dissipate heat. Okay, sure. So the, the big critters have an advantage on the cold side, the little critters lose population. On the warm side, the big critters lose population and the little critters don't. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. No, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And then the final thing is that there are um, event cards which can be triggered. Event cards are placed randomly uh, along the climate track. There's always two out. And if you move onto a region of the climate track that has an event card on it, that event card can be triggered. And then all kinds of crazy stuff can happen. So that can be, for example, a, a volcanic eruption or uh, an asteroid. Uh, so sure. the, the things that represent big historical events that have, have happened in Earth's own history can also happen in this game. Um, oh, this sounds like an amazing game, and uh, I'm really excited for, for the success that you guys have had with Kickstarter on this. Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, now, Glenn, you have Evolution in your yeah. store currently. Yes. And about how long would you say after you've fulfilled Kickstarter, um, uh, after you've gotten everybody their stuff from Kickstarter, about how long would stores start to see the product approximately? Can Do you have an idea on that, Nick? Yeah, it should be August or September. Okay. Okay, so, oh, wow. So end yeah, of as, September, a, as a store, we like our store games. They deliver... They deliver uh, what they say they're going to. Generally, nice. yeah, like, a lot of companies uh, don't. <laughs> it is very. It is. I you know. Uh, I used. I used to be get upset about companies constantly being late. Although now that I'm in 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 the industry, and I see how hard it is, how easy it is to miss your deadlines, I have a lot more sympathy for companies that that do miss their deadlines. Even though we you know we try very very hard not to. Well, I, you know, I think especially with how this works, once you guys come up with the concept, you come up with the designs, and then you start choosing the people who print or do other things, some of that is out of your hands, and the only thing you can try to do is prod them with phone calls and email, and, you know, some of that is really kind of out of your hands. So, yeah, I could see any delay on a third party, you know, uh, on third party's part, yeah, yeah, that gets, the, the delays get propagated. Yeah. Um, that's where being a long-standing uh, publisher comes in very handy because we've had years and years to figure out who our vendors should be, which sure. vendors tend not to make those mistakes. 
Sure. So that helps a lot. Uh, you know, a lot of there are a lot of new publishers that are still struggling with that, and we don't struggle with that as much. And looking at this, you guys are friendly. You're EU friendly. Uh, you guys are friendly with a couple other countries too. Yes. Yeah. So that will definitely help keep uh, shipping costs down, which that's got to be nice. Yeah, it, it's, it was a long time coming for us. In our last campaign, we felt our shipping prices were too high, and we've had to uh, dig hard to find a solution that works uh, works better for everybody. And looking at some of the uh, reviews that you've gotten from people who have, have played the game, or d just evolution alone, uh, a lot of high praise here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the reception so far has kind of blown us away. We've been really happy about it. Uh, it's a good thing because, you know, at the end of a long design funnel, uh, you know, you're very tired because, you know, we sort of go, we do iteration after dozens and dozens of iterations. It's like, it's like kneading the perfect bread dough. We keep folding it over and kneading it in on itself. Uh, and it's kind of crazy making after a while. So sure. when it finally hits the public for the first time, uh, if they love it, it feels like the best thing that ever happened to you. And if they don't love it, it, it feels like the worst thing that ever happened to you. Yeah, I, I had one other question. With you guys getting the high praise from nature, mm. do you think that you are now going to be able to tap into a slightly different market than before? Um, well, I think we'll get... The game will be used more and more for educational purposes. Okay. It was already being used for that. I regularly get emails from teachers who ask how they can get the game for use in their classrooms. And as it has spread out into the academic community more and more, we're seeing more of that and very happy that we are. Um, sure. It's also making us even more determined to make sure the theme is right. So we do a lot of consulting with uh, evolutionary biologists, for example. Sure. To make sure that what we're doing isn't... Uh, or make sure it matches the way life actually works. Okay, and uh, do you guys do... I know there are some companies that that can do educational discounts or things like that. Is that something that Northstar offers to get the game into classrooms for that purpose? Uh, we don't have any formal program okay. for doing that. Uh, we may in the future. I don't know. Sure, okay. All right. Oh, that's really cool. And... Uh, and I'm so glad that you guys have had uh, phenomenal success with this uh, campaign. Uh, it's it's off the charts, and you still have 16 days to go. Yeah, yes, yeah. so we still have the end the end campaign bump to go, which means we're probably going to end up way over 200,000, maybe even 300,000. Oh, that's really cool. That's yeah. really cool. And that's probably going to you know f that success is probably going to fold into the next. Uh, game that you do as well, which uh, that's got to be cool to see that kind of snowball effect, uh, especially on Kickstarter. You start building that reputation of of making a good game, and if you're able to hit your uh, deadlines for delivery, that's really got to snowball into even even greater success on on Kickstarter. Yeah, and this isn't the end of the road for us with Evolution. We're going to be doing more standalones and maybe more expansions as well. 
we're really committed to the system as a whole, so um, it's imperative that, that this does well so we can take the next step on the next game we do. Sure. I mean, and the, the most amazing thing about doing, doing games about evolution is there's an infinite number of um, possible mechanics to use because, you know, nature has so many different adaptations, so many different niches, so many different biological dynamics. Uh, it's, it feels endless. It's this space that people haven't really designed many games in. And it seems strange to me because there's just so much to it. Sure. And that, you know, equates to high replayability, which makes any game uh, even more valuable. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, and answering some of these questions and, and talking more about uh, Evolution Climate and uh, any other games that, uh, that you're working on in the future. We definitely want to have you back on, Nick. I will absolutely be on. Thank you for letting me yap as long as I just did. I, you know what? <laughs> you, are, you are more than welcome. Yeah, I no. Don't be sorry at all, Nick. <laughs> don't be People sorry have heard Brad and I talk enough. Yeah. I, <laughs> They're tired of hearing us talk, I think. Uh, no, so thank you so much, Nick. Um, and we're going to, uh, before we close the show, we're going to ask you for information as to how they can find uh, more about North Star Games, more about the work that you've done. Uh, and uh, so we're going to give you that opportunity here in just a second. Uh, hello, my name is... Uh, it's the opportunity for you, the listener or YouTube viewer, to tell us a little bit about the characters that you are currently playing uh, in your uh, role-playing sessions. If you're playing in a group or if you're running a session, uh, maybe you have an NPC that you enjoyed playing, uh, you can go to gncasts.com adventure and click on Hello, My Name Is, and there's a link off on the right-hand side, and uh, give us a little information about the games that you're playing and the characters that you enjoy uh, playing in that universe. Uh, we do ask for a little bit of information, uh, the reasons why that character is so awesome, the system you're playing in, and uh, your email address. And yes, we do ask for your email address. We don't spam. Uh, we have zero interest in spamming you. The only reason why we do that, <clears throat> excuse me, is uh, we send you back as a thank you a certificate uh, as a form of appreciation with uh, the information that you sent us about that character and game system. Uh, if you check us out on uh, Facebook, excuse me, our Facebook group, uh, Galactic Netcasts, you can see some of the images uh, in our photo gallery there of some of the certificates <laughs> that we've, we've sent to folks uh, as a way to thank, you, thank them for uh, taking the time to talk with us. Uh, you can find out more about our meetings and show notes uh, for each of those meetings, uh, contact information, and our subscription links by going to gncasts.com slash adventure. Uh, you can find us by following us on Twitter, or you can join our Facebook group page that I talked about earlier uh, by using the Facebook search term Galactic Netcasts. And you can also find all of our social media outlets by clicking on the links on our website, gncasts.com. Uh, you can find our YouTube channel, which is uh, youtube.com slash galacticnetcasts, all one word. Uh, and there you can see the video versions of all of our meetings. Uh, you can see our bright, shining faces or the top of Glenn's head. Uh, you know, <laughs> But also, we, uh, we use YouTube to uh, kind of show uh, images of the games that we're talking about 
I mean, while Nick was talking about uh, about evolution climate, we were showing some of the artwork uh, from the game that he was talking about. And uh, while we're doing the review, we show uh, images of the game that uh, Glenn is talking about. So uh, YouTube is also just a resource for you to get uh, extra dimension. And you hear uh, the raw version of our episodes are on YouTube. The audio version is a little bit more cleaned up and the final product that you get to hear with all the schnazzy bells and whistles added to it. So uh, you can find that audio version on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you do, uh, take a moment to give us a review and let us know what you think. Uh, Stitcher is thumbs up, thumbs down. iTunes, you can leave a one to five star. And uh, write us a little note and let, let us know what you like, what you weren't quite as fond of. Uh, that feedback that you give us uh, really kind of helps helps us make the show a little bit better. Uh, helps us focus on maybe some of the things that you think that we should uh, we should focus on that you, that you're more interested in. Uh, you can leave us feedback also by emailing adventure at gncasts.com. You can call or text us at the number 805-328-3966. Again, 805-328-3966. And uh, like I said, you can leave us a voice message there or you can leave us a text message. If you do the text, there might be a charge uh, applied to that depending on what your particular texting package is for your smartphone. Uh, you can also go to gncasts.com and on the homepage, on the lower left-hand corner, you uh, if you have a microphone attached to your computer, you can click that and you can leave us a... A voice message right directly through your computer. The system just shoots an email to us and we can hear your voice uh, saying whatever it is you want to say about the show. So uh, that's that. Nick, I want to thank you uh, for talking about Evolution Climate from North Star Games and where can people find out more about the work that you do and North Star Games? Yeah, first uh, you can check out Kickstarter to see our current campaign. Search for Evolution colon Climate on Kickstarter to find that campaign. If you want to visit us more generally, you can find us online at northstargames.com. You can also find us on Twitter as North Star Games, no spaces. Uh, and you can find us on Facebook at, as North Star Games as well. And I'm making a quick note. I didn't have the information on Twitter. So uh, it, for those of you that uh, uh, check out the video, uh, we will eventually get this information in the show notes, the audio version. We will make sure that you uh, can see all these different ways to see what, uh, what Nick's working on next at North Star. So, all right. Glenn. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for joining me once again uh, to do this show that we call Adventure Party. Uh, where can people find out more about what you do and more about Mist Runner? You can find me on Facebook, uh, Mist Runner the RPG, also BBB Bunker. Find me on YouTube with Guy in the Bunker Productions and the BBB Bunker, or follow me on Twitter at Guy in the Bunker. I love that new name. I really do. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I want to thank uh, want to thank you, Glenn and Nick, and everyone for uh, joining us on the adventure party. May your characters never die, and your adventures always be epic. Thank you, and good night.
This has been a Galactic Network podcast. For more, go to GNCast.com. That's G-N-C-A-S-T-S dot com.